is probably, without a doubt, one of the most important chapters in the Bible to understand. Uh, if one doesn't understand and grasp Genesis 3, then it's really going to be impossible to have a biblical worldview of the problem of man and the problem of evil. It's all explained right here. This uh, chapter is very valuable. It explains why the world has so many problems that it does. It explains the human dilemma. The answer is there. This is a what I would consider to be a foundation for uh, the view of where man is at, what has happened to him. A true worldview, I think, is is given here. Well, we just finished chapter 2. We saw a perfect world. We saw a perfect creation. Everything is good, very good. It's perfect. No sin, obviously. Everything has been laid out by God. We were in paradise last week. And uh, paradise is going to be falling in the way that we have seen it prevented, uh, presented. Now, I guess the deal is, is people would be asking, well, why don't we have that situation today? Why aren't we in a paradise like it was there? And really, uh, there are a lot of holes missing in, in our lives. We'd like to see things better. You know, we see things where um, it so many problems. And a lot of us are perfectionists. And we know that there's just something missing. We as Christians, we, we know we have the answer. But people who are not Christians, they're always reaching out for that extra oomph. There's something missing. Something's not right. Well, evolution can't answer this. It can't answer the problem of what has happened. Uh, we have moral problems. We have spiritual problems. And if you take an evolution view, it would be impossible really to answer um, the questions that are dealing with moral issues, the spiritual issues. Evolutionists really can't account for anything uh, since they don't believe in spirituality. And, and that's the whole deal. They take God totally out. Anything spiritual, anything supernatural is uh, written out of the equation. And so evolution really, whether they would admit it or not, uh, well, I think they have to really say that there's no reality of God. I think that uh, is one thing they're saying. And and once you say that, then really good and evil is meaningless. Really has no meaning whatsoever. Everything is by chance. That's what we hear about evolution. There's no reason to consider morality. Uh, there's no reason to consider ethics, if that be the case. And so, why would uh, anybody even consider Hitler to, to be wrong in what he did? Most people would consider him to be an evil man. What gives them the right to draw a conclusion, to bring a judgment forth, if there is no supreme being that has uh, given us written laws and rules? Uh, there's nothing that they can go by other than say, well, this is good and this is bad. If it's really bad, if there's a murder that's going on, then that must be bad. But even at that, they don't have the answer for that. Man, really, uh, when you look at man and the fall in Genesis 3, it refutes evolution. So 
even a Christian cannot compromise and say, well, there's evolution working inside of creation. You know, God allowed evolution to happen. Uh, it can't be that way because Genesis 3 teaches us that man was at the top of the created order and he was without sin. He was in a state of innocence. What a place to be. It was a, it was a great uh, situation. And so he started out as far as he could be outside of the glorification that we all look to. But there's a, there's a created order, and God has put him there, and then the fall happens, and what you have is a disgraceful, uh, sinful, uh, a spiritual decline where man really is much worse than what he was. He was without sin, and God said it was very good, Right, and now all of a sudden it's like no, no, he's not. He's declined. But what does evolution say? Man is getting better. He's getting better, uh, and so he's going up. He's climbing up those steps, and that's far from the truth. Uh, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter one, Paul. Um, probably have to make some more if somebody wouldn't mind. There goes Zach. <laughs> In uh, Romans one twenty one, Paul shows uh, God's wrath that is unleashed on man and his unrighteousness. And it says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Look at the decline here in their idolatry from man and of birds and of four-footed animals and then all the way down to crawling creatures. That's as far as their idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Uh, man started out on the top of the order, and then we see that uh, he falls way down. He continues to, to go down. He's depraved, is really what he is. What The fall. What's that? 
No. Um, this is the, the natural order of man. Uh, once the fall happened, they became all of these things. All of those sins that are mentioned. That's a depraved mind. That's the depravity of man. Uh, that's what happened. That's what the fall did. And, of course, if you continue to read through Romans, uh, chapter 2, especially in chapter 3, we see uh, it continues with the depravity of man. There's no one good, no one righteous. Of course, we've covered that many, 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 many times. It's a, the doctrine of the, the fall of man and um, how he inherits uh, the sin of, of Adam. Romans 5 talks about that. So, in 1 Corinthians 15, so when you when you look at what happened in Genesis, and then you see it also in the New Testament, uh, you see that man has uh, a drastic, major problem, and he cannot be able to uh, remedy that. It's only going to be through uh, God's good news. Um, we can go to Second Timothy three thirteen. Man is man, and man is sinful, and sin is the same as it always has been. The only thing in the times that we live in, because of technology, it seems to get worse, although it's the, the baseness is already there. It has more ways, or different ways, or more visible ways of, of showing his uh, depravity. Uh, verse 13, 2 Timothy 3.13, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, mankind is uh, in quite a terrible situation. Uh, nothing but Christ. Christ alone can lift him out of that bondage of sin. He can't get out of it. And neither does he want out of it. He doesn't know he's in it. And uh, even if he does know he's in it, he doesn't want out of it. The world, I think, really has to admit that there is evil. And they will admit that. And so when you get an evolutionist admitting that there is evil, and that's why some people do not want to believe in God because there uh, are things like pain and suffering, evil, and so therefore they don't want to believe in God because a good God wouldn't have that. We'll try to get into maybe some of that answer tonight. Um, I'm taking a long time on an introduction here, but um, when we think about the problem of evil, you can think of some of the best minds of history, and they have to do something with evil. They have to do something with what we call as, as sin. And what are some of the greatest minds? Well, Albert Einstein is one of the greatest minds. Uh, we, we think of uh, his great intellect that he had, one of the greatest scientists of uh, the century that he was in. Um, for Albert Einstein... Um, the toughest intellectual barrier that he had was not creation because he knew that there had to be an intelligence that made this universe. And so it wasn't that. We know that that's what stumbles up most of the scientists in our time. He believed in cause and effect. And because of that, there was no way that he could say, I believe in evolution. Um, the universe was an effect of what this intelligence source did. Uh, what he uh, also said is he couldn't fathom something like, um, let's say, something bouncing around out in the universe, out in space, and uh, just randomly coming together and bringing forth all this intelligence. He could not see that in his mind. Good thinking, right? That's, that's, that's good thinking. That's using the mind that God gave him. But uh, So we see that he was not stumped 
because there was a creator. He tended to believe in that, but um, there was something that went tougher than the creation of the universe and the doctrine of creation. It was evil and suffering. And that was the thought that caused problems with him. And that's usually the problem with people who do not believe in God uh, or Christ because they'll usually ask, uh, well, why would a good God allow suffering and evil and death? And that seems to be a legitimate question. But I think um, there are probably other questions we need to be asking. Um, But that is what caused his problem. And um, he was a a Jewish person who had Scripture. He he denied the very Scripture that was given to him. And what tripped uh, tripped him up at the most would be that he was a determinist. And in that, he viewed human beings as being machines or puppets. And so there's a, a higher being... And this is this is his reasoning as it would go. Because of this, then, there's some kind of force upon these human beings and they're like wind-up toys. Uh, or you can think of wind-up clocks or whatever. And then uh, you wind them up and they just do whatever they were made to do. And uh, so he, he said, okay. Uh, he concluded with this. Um, if that be the case, then there can be no such thing as morality. Because if we're just wind-up toys, then we're not responsible for anything that we do because it's already been determined to do. Uh, Some cosmic mind out there came up with this, designed these human beings to do whatever they do, and uh, that person now is not responsible for his actions because this mind out there is the one that's responsible because he's the one that wound them up. And so therefore, there's no responsibility for mankind. Well, so who's responsible? God is responsible. This is Albert Einstein's thinking. Without Scripture. Using a great mind. But if God is responsible, then he can't be a good God. That's what Einstein's saying. He can't be good because evil is happening. And so therefore you have good and you have evil and he couldn't put that together. And if God was like this, he'd be constantly passing judgment on himself as being evil, even though he has good. So now he's in a quandary. Uh, Well, he couldn't accept that either, though. He came to the conclusion, they go, no way, it can't be that. Uh, I can't accept that God could be good and evil. So I determined this, that there's no personal God at all. God is not a God who reveals. God is not uh, in person and that He can um, get in touch with His creatures and even reveal Himself to them and talk to them. So he rejected the God of Judaism. He rejected the God of Christianity. Um, and he said there's just a rational force out there. It's rational. We're rational human beings, so there's a rational force. There's some kind of a rational structure, but it's impersonal. So this is how he's arrived at all this. A rational mind created all of these robots. And But he couldn't be a personal God with a personal nature. Now, Christianity believes in a personal God. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's the idea of, of the Word, right? Logos. So Einstein, we know, was wrong. Even with a great mind, it's finite, as much as great as it was, but it was also sinful. And uh, he never did get it, as far as we know. He didn't come to the place where he fully understood that God is the one in creation who is the one that did all this. He was never satisfied uh, with that. Uh, He was wrong, but God is a personal God. That's a basic understanding that Christians have. Uh, But he wouldn't believe the Scriptures. And they're right here. He had the Scriptures. Coming from Judaism, they still had the Old Testament. They still had creation involved. They had the fall of man. They had the law. They had everything that they needed uh, to be brought to salvation. God does exist, and so does suffering, and so does death. And so now, what we would ask, well, how did death and suffering, how did sin enter into the world? And as we embark upon this great chapter 3, it's right here. This is how it happened. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father... We thank You. Thank You for Your revelation of Yourself to us that we can know You, to know about You, and to actually have a personal relationship with You. You uh, have sought that out. You've sought us out and brought us to You so that we can know You, so we can have eternal life. We praise You so much for that uh, blessing. It's all a matter of grace. It's what You have done, and we give You glory for that. That is the reason that we're here tonight. That's the reason we exist. It's the reason we exist for eternity, to bring You glory and to help us tonight, uh, once again, to bring a little bit more glory to You and that we would be um, settled in our own hearts and our, our minds about what has happened to mankind and and what the solution is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we turn to chapter 3. Boy, if the world could just get these first three chapters, it would be helpful, wouldn't it? We we get the good news in chapter 3, too. We get the fall of man, but we get the uh, proto-evangelium. And... uh, God could have left him hanging for a while, couldn't he? But uh, he gives the good news of being Jesus Christ. So, we start off with uh, some bad news here as we look at, uh, here's how it started. Here's how the fall started. Here's where sin came as far as mankind. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden... The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You shall surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, 
And if the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. What happened? It didn't change, did it? It's still the same story. <laughs> and we're still thinking, Lord, when are you coming back to make all this perfect and right and without sin? We wait. Anyway, um, the serpent, or um, in the Hebrew it's a word for reptile, actually. We usually think of, of snake. It, it relates to even the, the word hiss. Uh, some kind of a reptile, some kind of a serpent, uh, as probably most of your Bibles say. Um, sometimes you think of a slithering snake as he, as he slithers, but that doesn't happen until the curse, uh, where he's on his belly eating dirt, right? Uh, that was part of the curse. So in some measure, this appears as probably an upright animal, not um, doing what we know as snakes do now as the curse had come later. This particular animal, as he comes as a, as the serpent, this particular one has a personality. Um, speaks with intelligence. This is more than just an animal. As he... Uh, we don't know for sure exactly what happens. Does he take over a body here? What What's going on? Um, I think we can see that, <coughs> okay... We as Christians, we already know what this is. This is the serpent. You know, who is that serpent? What is this serpent? Who is that dragon? As we learn other terms for him, but um, this deceiver, the, the one uh, that uh, we see so often mentioned throughout the New Testament, especially. It's none other than the devil. We know that. We don't have to prove it too much, but we'll go through a few scriptures and just identify him here. Uh, in a few moments, this particular animal at the moment is um, very evil, very malicious, very devious, has quite the mind, and a much in, more intelligent mind than what our minds are today. Um, this is quite uh, quite an enemy, and it's amazing how he is able to... Uh, do some things here to the humans who were in a situation uh, that they were innocent, they were without sin, had great minds too. Go back to Revelation 12. So we'll go from Genesis to Revelation tonight. How about that? From A to Z. And he should be here. That was quick. There we go. We're moving. 12, 9 and 10. And here you get... um, or dragon, for instance. Oh, we pick it up in verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels. So he's known here as the dragon, the serpent, the devil and Satan. Quite a few different terms just right there. Uh, Go to chapter 20 of Revelation. He's mentioned again. Just seeing some identification here that stays consistent. 21 through 4. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, 
thinking of Genesis, who is the devil and Satan, down him for a thousand years. What do we have here? We have Satan, we have devil, we have dragon, um, something that appears more than just once. We can learn a little bit more about him if we turn to Second Corinthians in uh, chapter 11, verse 3. Now, Paul is uh, just appealing from Genesis, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, he compares it to them being deceived also by uh, other false teachers and such. Anyway, what what is happening here is that uh, we see that he's uh, very deceptive. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can go to Job. And we remember uh, Job and his suffering. And of course, Satan had something to do with that, didn't he? But we know that God is sovereign and God actually uses Satan to bring forth this tremendous story of Job. In uh, Job verse uh, 6, chapter 1, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God suggested that to him. Interesting. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work on his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departs <coughs> the presence of the Lord. You can't take him. You can do about everything else. Um, so we see that... Um, Satan not only uh, went to Adam and Eve, but he also worked on other people. And he wants to destroy people, uh, but mainly he's really he's really wanting to take on God. I don't think he's really uh, I don't think he's really scared of the people so much as um, and just wants to taunt them. Although that's a thing that he can do, but he uh, he wants to get at at God's people at the most. Jesus mentioned um, Satan. I'm not going over all the scriptures, but just a few highlights that uh, kind of help us see what happened. He, this is dealing with the fall of him in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Pick it up to 17. Seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he's going to show something here. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. This is a, dealing with a, with a fall. I was watching. I saw him. I, I, don't be so surprised that the demons are subject to you because uh, I have power over them. You know, that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, he's like he's the, the very um, captain of all this. He's in control of this. He 
said, I, I saw him fall. And so, it's kind of interesting that as, as they realized that uh, the demons were subject to them because they mentioned the name of Christ, the very authority of Christ. And when the authority was mentioned and God working through them, then they were, uh, they were actually bowing to the, uh, or in, in submission to, uh, to Christ through these 70 going out in the Lord's name. Now, in the Old Testament, there's also some other passages, and I will say they can be debated on, um, but I'll turn to them anyway. I've, I've done them several times. You could go to Ezekiel 28. And when you interpret Scripture, first of all, you want to try to get what is it saying here immediately? What is what is the meaning here? Uh, in Isaiah, Ezekiel 28, you get a king by the, uh, from Tyre who is actually being uh, judged by God. He's going to be overthrown. Uh, he's the leader of Tyre. And he was a great leader. Uh, a great, great nation there. A great, uh, great area. And as he was uh, known as that, God's going to take him from the top all the way down to the bottom. And that would be, where, if you interpret, that would be, first of all, that's who that's meaning. There could be, and there's a poetic image, imagery that's involved. Um, it could mean, and I don't press this, but it could be the sense that, too, this could be um, a picture of Satan also. So it could expand out that. And I don't want to uh, do damage to this because, because there are many times you can take a passage you know, of the Old Testament and make it mean something else and, and so you turn it into symbolism. But I think there are some reasons why uh, many really good expositors, this is not some kind of heretical teaching if somebody says that this could possibly be, be Satan. You don't have to press it. But it's interesting, I think, what he has here that it, it could extend to that. And if not, it's okay, but it's interesting to read. Uh, verse 11, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him... So we know immediately it is the king of Tyre. Okay, We know that, without a doubt. Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Um, Anyway, I'll stop there. There, The reason I say there's some similarities that this could be um, the one who was Lucifer, uh, Satan before his fall. Uh, here he's comparing, here somebody has a seal of perfection, at least in his, let's say, his uh, works that he did, uh, uh, his enterprise that he had, in his trade in the ancient world. Okay? We know legitimately it's, it's this king of Tyre. Uh, but... Uh, he has wisdom. He's perfect in beauty. I mean, he has quite a uh, an ordeal going up at the top. Then he mentions verse and thirteen. You were in Eden, and he could be comparing uh, to the the Garden of Eden. I think so. Uh, or it could be um, Tyre's king in a, a, a amazing environment that he lived in. 
Okay? Um, but it's interesting that he does bring Eden in there and, and the garden. talks about the stones and such. Then he says in 14, you were the anointed cherub. And that could be like a, an angel, a cherub that was guarding uh, in the garden at one time. Or this could be Satan who was... Um, you know, dealing with he's he was an angel also, and uh, he was in the holy mountain of God. And verse fifteen, I find very interesting. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And I think that's pretty um, staggering when you see that this man was blameless from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. We know that every man that uh, has ever lived outside of Adam and Eve are created, what, in sin. They're depraved. And I'm, I'm not making a blanket statement, but I think it's fascinating that this is a possibility. Um, I don't think that this king was completely uh, blameless in his ways uh, until he finally uh, committed unrighteousness. So it's possible, um, it could be accurate that this could be uh, Satan before he sinned. Unrighteous found any. Anyway, um, it's talking about a fall here. Somebody that is a man, uh, or, or somebody that is, in this case, the king of Tyre, who was high up in his leadership, and God was going to bring him down. And regardless of whether this is Satan or not, if I'm reinterpreting this wrongly, the thing is, this is what happened to Satan also. He was high up uh, as an angel, without sin and he was perfect in all of his ways in his creation and then we know that he fell uh, it's amazing you can look through all through the Old Testament and you can see the fall of different nations and different leaders <laughs> they were put up in high positions and almost always um, they they have the matter of pride they fall and so it's been going for years and it uh, will continue to do that God will lift them up and then bring them down and it's interesting that uh, Satan was in quite a position himself until uh, he fell and then a third of the angels. So, did God make Satan evil? No. Not at all. Uh, everything that God created was what? Good. Satan has an influence. It's very evil. Um, but yet God uses... Satan in his plan for a lot of reasons. One, to show grace, to show mercy, to provide salvation for fallen man. And so when God uses something so terrible, you have to think of Romans 8.28. God um, is going to be able to use everything. He can use sin. He can use Satan, uh, death, uh, for His glory. And that's quite a quandary for most people. They have a problem with that. But this was all done before the foundation of the world. Um, plenty of passages to deal with. I think of Ephesians 1.4, foundation of the world. You can think of Second Timothy 1.9, before the foundation of the world. All of this was planned out. This was all a part of His plan. So when sin happened, was God caught off guard wasn't, was he? So he planned or ordained 
some of these things that would happen, but yet he does not, and we'll get into that in a moment uh, we'll, when we talk about where did evil come from. He does not pioneer it uh, in the sense, I mean, um, where he in, there's no such thing as him inventing sin or creating sin, although yet he uses it, ordains it, it's part of his plan. And that's an incredible thought. It sounds so contradictory to our human thinking, but uh, we know that evil does not come from God. So, look at Habakkuk. And I know everybody's turning, oh, where's that at? Pretty pretty uh, near the end of the Old Testament. Before you get to Zephaniah. Yeah. <laughs> Here it's speaking about uh, our great God. Verse 12 says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One. Uh, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Great praise there. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk goes on, has some great questions. Uh, But when it all comes down to it, God knows what He's doing. God is sovereign. God is perfect in every way. Uh, But He does not look upon evil with favor. His eyes are too pure to approve of evil. Uh, No, uh, God does not create evil. And then we can look at... Uh, look at... Uh, oh, in Isaiah 6. What does it say? What, what are they saying three times? The angels, holy, holy, holy. That's the absolute peak of what um, God is about. He is pure. He's transcendent. Uh, the opposite from sin. He's holy in every way. Look in 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the church of the saints. Uh, we know that evil is confusion, isn't it? It's nothing but confusion. God is not the author of confusion. He does not uh, create confusion. It's not a created thing, by the way. It's not a substance. It's not a force. Um, look in James one thirteen. People can think some evil things of God. God must be an evil God that He would allow these things to happen. If that's the way that God is people would say, I don't want him. But we get the truth from the Scripture. And in James it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. Right? That's a character of God. So we we see that He is separate. 
from sin. And that's the idea of holiness, too. It's to be separated. Be separated from anything that would be different from Him. Uh, so, evil is not the presence of something. Uh, evil is the absence of righteousness. Evil is the absence of goodness. Evil is the absence of perfection. Evil is the absence of holiness. The absence of goodness. Those are all characteristics or the nature of who? God, right? Yeah. Boy, is that ever put on display, huh? Thank you. That's why we thank Him every day for His grace and mercy. We sure don't deserve to be here. Wow. What a God. Evil became a reality only when uh, creatures chose to disobey. Uh, evil came into existence, I guess, uh, initially with, with Satan and his fall. And then next was the fall of man. Of course, Satan was involved in both of those. So evil is not a created thing. It's not a substance. It's not a force. It's not an entity. Evil is not a being. Evil is not um, some kind of floating spirit out there. Evil is a lack of moral perfection. And usually um, when people think of defining sin, one of the ones that we know best is um, what do you think of when you think of sin? How, how have you heard it defined a lot or, or when you first learned about what sin was? Falling short of the glory of God. And that's uh, there are other definitions, but I think that's a pretty good way to put it because it's a lack of moral perfection. If it's not about who God is, it's going to be sin. It's going to be lacking that. God created absolute perfection. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we saw the perfection that God had. <laughs> Does that, does that go back to the choice then? Is that what that... Um, you, as far as... Um, Adam's choice there. Adam? Yeah. Adam and Eve. He um, he gave that too. And that, that's, then they were lacking the... Um, I can say the holiness of God when that happened. Because he had already stated what they were to do and not to do. Of course, there was only one thing that they were not to do. And so the moment they did that, now they made the choice of having the... There was an absence of righteousness then. There was the absence of holiness which God had had set forth. So evil comes into existence whenever um, man falls short, and he did at that moment, of the standard the very standard that God set of moral perfection. There was moral perfection. Moral perfection is eat of all these other trees. All of these other trees you can eat from. Man, why did we have that answer last week when I was so confused? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get it now. <laughs> the beauty of expository as we move into is that, is that helpful? Yeah. Sorry, I hope this is... <laughs> Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, if 
if evil is the absence of moral perfection, then they they didn't have moral perfection before the, before the temptation, though, right? Would you say they had moral perfection? They were declared as innocents. Right. It's almost like there's a... Oh, this is where Jonathan Edwards gets... <laughs> You're getting real tricky now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking, like, there's, there's, there's almost this... Um, like, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in a sense, grew in moral... He grew in perfection, right? Right. So he, but he wasn't evil prior to that. So is there... Um, just like Adam and Eve weren't evil prior to the temptation, and had they obeyed, they would have ex- they would have matured in their perfection. Had they disobeyed, they they transgressed into evil. So, is there something more nuanced than the absence of moral perfection? I'm afraid if we go too much further, we're going to paint ourselves into a corner. <laughs> John Gerstner, that's what he said about what Jonathan Edwards did with this, and it's this gets into quite the depth. And uh, we, we can get into trouble. Even with what I'm saying there, we can we can probably uh, maybe I've oversimplified that, but I'm trying to get it to a uh, an extent of where we can kind of get a handle on uh, falling short of the glory of God. Uh, they were walking in a perfect place. They were perfect in the sense that they were created good. So there was nothing evil in them, even in itself. How much further we can get, uh, it gets really hard. It does. And we could get really, it could get complicated. So I won't try to complicate it too much. Yeah, but I I know what you're thinking. Because that's the next, yeah, believe me, it's a little battle going on here. Okay, okay. But, yeah, that's a good example of Jesus. I mean, he, he he was perfect even when he was a little baby, but he still had to grow in stature. He wasn't done yet, you know. Uh, and so they were too. They were innocent, but and without sin. But they, and of course, this is where you get into where uh, your Reformed theology uh, teaches that um, he had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. There's their choice. Yeah. It brings up um, the idea that uh, perhaps they could have remained neutral if they hadn't been tempted on an outside. By an outside uh, entity, you know, just an idea there. Uh, that, you know, it takes that. It's sort of like almost a law of physics. You know, uh, there's an action, uh, a reaction, of some sort. Yep. Yeah, and behavior. The only thing important, maybe, about the question and answer is that uh, just, just, to, just to say that sin that um, holiness isn't just like the absence of breaking God's commandments, but it's also the presence of keeping God's commandments, the whole act of righteousness. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that, that just that just reminds me of Adam and Eve weren't holy per se. Yeah, they were they were created good, they weren't inherently evil, but they also weren't righteous like Christ is righteous because they hadn't fulfilled God's law yet. And uh, it's just really worshipful, worshipful for me to remember that and consider that Jesus did a lot more than just take away the fall. He also then turned around and accomplished the, the law of God for us, which I didn't. didn't but right. And and around there, sorry. No, it's kind of kind of interesting thing too. You know, we are 
we are being sanctified, even though we can still see in a sense that uh, we look at our experience and sometimes it may not seem that way. But as he works that work in there, there there is an ongoing process. Of course, you run into different theologies on that too. You know, there are different views of sanctification. (laughs) We're not going to get into that. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I think it's a... It's an amazing thing what uh, what what happens here, though. You know, when you when you think of uh, God taking evil and making it a part of His plan, and I know that's one of the big questions when somebody becomes a Christian and they really start thinking about the sin. Well, then, where did sin come from? You know, uh, he's and we know he's not the creator of evil, don't we? We looked at those passages. And He's not the cause of evil. We can never blame God because there's evil. And that's what Einstein was thinking about. We were talking about him earlier. Um, he had to blame God because if if it's just us and we're like robots or we're like wind-up toys, then how can we have the responsibility? The responsibility is not on us. It must be the one who made us. And that's not the case at all. He did not bring evil into existence. What do you mean by, on the outline then, why, what do you mean by, why would God decree? What well, decree is part of His plan. It's not the same uh, as authoring it or making it. What it is, it's now He's able to take sin, and He didn't cause it, but to take the sin and, and to use that all in His plan. And that's hard for finite minds to comprehend. And all throughout the rest of your life, you'll probably be trying to learn a little bit more about that. I I don't know how far we can get that, but we do know. um, uh, Why would God decree and allow sin? We, We know this. We know that He can save sinners. He does save sinners, and we are witnesses of that. And when He did that, as you mentioned earlier, Grace and mercy. He gets to put that on display. Number two is he can also display his wrath. Romans 9 um, kind of puts both of those into place there. But that means uh, he is going to judge sinners. He's going to save sinners. He's going to judge sinners. And number three, in order that he would ultimately destroy evil. And that's what he will ultimately do. Isn't that good to know? I think it's it's hard to get uh, sometimes you get confused on the words like when you said when you've got decree written down there I look at that and I <coughs> what I know the word to mean that's like I've struggled with um, we bless the Lord now I'm thinking who am I to bless the Lord I ain't got no and like today so I was listening to something and it said bless the Lord make him happy you know I'm like oh okay well I get that concept so I think sometimes the words we use maybe we understand in some different way. Yeah. Um, bless the Lord, O my soul, and yeah, all that is within me. Right? Got no power to bless Him. And it's all. And you know, you just as you said it, we really don't. Yeah. But through the person of Christ, now we can, and it pleases Him, and He loves it when we're really praising Him, when we're blessing Him, uh, when we're saying good things about Him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
that's a privilege to even even do that. Um, it's so important. And we talked about secondary causes. Like, I mean, that's what. Yeah, go ahead. God, God, is a, I think decree is a good, awesome biblical word because He's the King. And somehow, um, I really love that confession that we read from the, the confession we read from on Sunday morning. Sometimes that you know, I was just reading through it, and it says God is able to be the King and decree and ordain all things that come about, even sin, using secondary causes, meaning sometimes He ordains and does things directly, like he says, let there be light, and there's light. And sometimes he says, let there be a fall by all of these things, and, and allows this to happen, and plans and orchestrates all these things. And he, he's able to be the king and actively decree all those things, but use causes, natural causes, secondary causes, in such a way that he's not the direct agent in all the of the same. And the reason that we can't grasp, grasp that and get our minds around that is because he's alone in the unique position in the whole universe to be able to do that. Right? There, there's no there's no analogy of there's no analogy of a God in a relationship to a universe. There's nothing to compare that to, unless you're Mormon and there's other God in the universe. <laughs> Yeah. But my main point is that he he can he can decree and cause it loosely mm-hmm. by using other things, and by him doing that, he is morally separated from the evil of doing that, right? Yeah, and only in his wisdom could he come up with that. And and in our greatest wisdom, it's hard to fathom that, though. I mean, how far can we take that? We know it's true. And this is a great God. And we know it's all good. That's what's great about it. We can say, why doesn't he... How many times have you asked, why didn't he just remove it? (laughs) Why didn't he just take us into glory, you know, right now? Uh, That wasn't his plan. I mean, he has something much greater than that. When it's all said and done... And if we were able to look in on it and see what, uh, how he did it and everything, we'll, we'll just give him even more glory, because this is incredible. This is a story of the ages. Um, then you have to ask the, what about the tree? Why did he put that there? And it still goes back to his decrees. It still goes back, and I think the answer for a lot of things is found before the foundation of the world. And it's all in his plan. It's all for good. And he doesn't at the same time create evil in the sense that what we think of. I mean, he, you know, he does, he, sin is not part of him at all. So you have this fruit, whatever that is. Macintosh apples. Yeah. Okay, is it the Macintosh? What do you think? John, what do you think? <laughs> this John right here, yeah. Okay. Johnny Appleseed right here worked in the apple industry for years. Do you think it might have been an apple in Genesis 3? Not <laughs> Nowhere do we see where it's... Uh, no, we don't know, do we? We don't know. People usually say that. You see it in the kids' children's books. You know, there is that apple, a big red apple. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> yeah. 
the fruit would symbolize that although Adam and Eve had maximum freedom, people can think, well, why would God put that in there anyway? Listen, they had all the freedom they would ever need at that at that time, right there on earth, and but yet they still needed to see, even though they had all this freedom, that they're still God's creatures. And they can enjoy that freedom, all that they have, and it's an incredible amount of freedom, to eat from all those other trees. How many there were. It goes on and on. It was a result of God's gift. That was a great gift that He gave them. I mean, it's just awesome. But uh, there was a restraint on them, no doubt about it. But we know when we look at this further in a couple of weeks then, I guess, um, that that restraint is used by Satan to emphasize rather than to say, hey, listen, you've got all this other freedom out here. But No, he, he just comes in, uh, and goes right at Eve and saying, hey, you can't, you can't eat of that, huh? Um, but... And 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 so she kind of defended God, but kind of halfway. We'll get into that later. But it was to remind them that they were not God. We know that for sure. That they need to know that they're not God. And they are accountable to Him. And they are responsible to Him. And so that goes back to the sin thing. Who's responsible for sin? Well, it certainly isn't God. He can't be blamed on sin whatsoever. As much as people like to do, the natural man really does. Well, I don't believe in God because if there was a a God, He would never have uh, evil in this world. And they'll use that. So therefore, I don't believe in God. That's a... That's terrible rationalizing. What's that? Could you cover that Isaiah 45-7 that you have on the outline then? Oh, okay. Um... Yeah, Um, I think I know what you mean there. Uh, Talking about him, uh, is that ordaining? Yeah, okay. And our interpretation, our uh, interpretation, but our uh, our scripture here is uh, going to come down to what what does that mean? Is that forty five seven right? The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well being and creating calamity. He does create calamity. Um, you'll see calamity all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see it in the New Testament. You you have wars. Um, you will have him bringing forth judgment upon leaders and nations. And uh, he brings those wars. He causes them to happen. They can be a, a first cause, or they can be a secondary cause, like what I was talking about there earlier. Um, you know, he can he can use things, but he he's the one that creates. All of those issues, the calamity, uh, the judgment that comes upon it. Does that, does that help? Okay. So he, he's in charge of all this is what the idea is. As He, uh, he actually used Cyrus in, uh, in his plan to bring forth what he was going to do. Uh, this was uh, really a, a, a non-Jew. It was somebody from uh, the, uh, the secular world, uh, a leader, to bring forth his plan. And then he sums that up and says, hey, he's the one that created light, he had darkness, he causes well-being, and he also causes calamity. He he can have peace, but he says, I am the Lord who does all these. He's in control of all things. That's a good sovereignty verse. 
showing that, uh, yeah, he can do this, and it's perfectly good and right because he has to punish evil. And ultimately, one of these days, he will bring on the greatest calamity ever whenever uh, he throws sin, Satan, death, and hell into the lake of fire and it's all done with. But that's a great calamity too. But it's all for his yeah, all for his purpose. I give of calamities, but yeah, I'm like, no, <laughs> that's because that's on our side. <laughs> it, when you think of calamity, right. uh, you think, oh, or some versions might read even evil. Uh, what's another word for calamity in that forty-five-seven? What is it? Disaster. Disaster. Yeah. Uh, we can think of the tornadoes. Yeah, I the hurricanes. Of, I of confusion, so that's when, then when we were talking about that other verse earlier about I'm not God of confusion, then, right. then that's why I was like confused. But he'll, he will carry out his plan or his judgment, um, the things that have happened on the, uh, as far as weather concerns. Who, who controls the weather? You know, God is controlling all of that. And what that does for Christians is not fear, but it's what? It's peace. Because you know, oh, He is doing this in His control. And this is going to be for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This is what He has decreed. So when we see Him in that big of a way, then we can say, I can rest in that. I am really at ease even whenever there is turmoil going all around. I don't know if you guys feel it or not, but there are a lot of people really concerned with what's happening in the world today, what's happening in our nation economically, politically, religiously. I'm telling you, um, there is a lot of calamity happening. Uh, but I'll, I don't know exactly what God is doing, but I can say this is going to work out for good. But right now, it's it's... It makes you feel maybe uh, slightly ill at ease, but then you think, oh, well, uh, God's working this out. So then that puts it in a perspective. When we have that kind of God and knowing it's much bigger than me, this is much bigger than my country, it's much bigger than this world, then you can say, oh, this is all about God. But if you don't have an idea what Genesis 3 is about and the rest of Scripture, can you imagine people trying to live and conduct themselves in this world, they they don't know what's going on. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to elect people that will change things. But that's not the answer, is it? So anyway, that's how these kind of things help in our view of what Scripture is and who Christ is and what it's about. That's We have that. And we just saw, just in a... I don't even know if we covered the first verse there, did we? But uh, hopefully that will kind of help us uh, get introduced to the rest of this uh, little section that's so important. Uh, we, we know it, we've heard it, read it many times, but it's, uh, it's invaluable to us. This is, our, this is where the doctrine starts of the depravity of man. If people can't get that clear, if they can't get that clear in their minds, then they can't understand a sovereign God. They can't understand what sovereign grace is. They can't understand what mercy is all about. They really can't understand what the love of God is. Because the rest of the world sees Him, if they do believe in God, if they'll say that, they see that, what kind of God is that that would do that? We know. He revealed it to us. Why don't we... uh,